And in honor of the reading of God's word, would you, if you're able, please stand. This is a reading from Mark chapter 11. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. The word of the Lord. Right, I think I'm not going to touch this. I'm just going to uh, lead us in prayer. Would you please pray with me? Father, we... Um, we again remember in your presence uh, that you are here, um, that, that what we are engaging in when we've been singing and when we are praying and now as we are listening is not just some sort of religious activity, but it is actually us meeting with you and worshiping you and listening to you. And so, um, Staggered by that thought when we began to really understand what we're saying, we, we ask for your help. We want to be able to hear you well. We want you to please shape us and make us more and more the people that you have created us to be. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to begin by asking you to kind of um, to use your imagination for a moment. Imagine that uh, it's tomorrow at this time, so about 10 o'clock, and you are busy doing what you normally would do on a Monday. So maybe you're at home, uh, maybe you're in your office, let's just assume it's one of those two places, and you get a knock at the door, and you, you open the door, and there's a somewhat short, 
Middle Eastern man with, with dark hair that you've, you don't think you've met before. And he says to you, hi, I'm Jesus. And somehow, maybe it's the Holy Spirit, maybe it's just because you understand something that you're surprised by, you realize this actually is Jesus. Jesus is right here at your door talking to you. And so you're, you, like, you do nothing. Like you're kind of like in this, like your brain is kind of going into overdrive. Like what does this mean? What's going on here? And so you're just kind of like standing by the door and finally Jesus smiling says, do you mind if I come in? And you're like, yeah, okay, sure, sure. And you invite him to sit down and then he starts talking to you and he says, um, I'm here because I've come for you. And that freaks you out. You're like, does that mean I'm dying? He's like, no, no, that's not what I mean. Um, I, I want you to come follow me. So you kind of process that for a moment, and you mean, you mean right now? Yes. Uh, how long? Could be a couple hours, could be many years. Um, where am I going? Jesus smiles but says nothing. He says, I just am asking you to come follow me. Well, I, I've got kids to take care of. Don't worry, God will take care of your children. Try to imagine this in this scene in the moment. Imagine yourself in wherever you might be having this conversation. What, what, what is going on in your mind in that moment, do you think? Are, are there parts of you that are resisting as Jesus is saying, I want you to leave whatever you have and come? This, is, this seems maybe like a really strange idea. On one hand, we know that that's not going to be what happens. One day, Jesus, when he returns, he will come not like that. But... This is not that far off of a scenario. This is what God did with Abraham, right? God meets Abraham, says, Abraham, I want you to go. You're not going to know where you're going, just come. When Jesus is walking through, you know, like meeting his disciples, he says, drop your nets and come follow me. To Levi, he says, drop your tax collecting and come follow me, and they do. So, so how do you feel in that moment? What will you do? What, what resistance do you find within yourself about the idea of dropping everything and following Jesus. As I've thought this question through, I, I, I found it somewhat kind of revealing. Because when I'm honest, and I, I realize it exposes within me the question of how, how open I actually am to the work of God in my life. How much do I actually expect God to be acting? How much do I open myself up to his directing, even when it surprises or confuses? And how much am I just so busy with the right now that I don't have space when God is at work? So I raise this question because in some ways, as we are, during the season of Lent, going through these chapters of Mark, we are at a point in the story where Jesus is doing something like this. This is the final week where Jesus comes to Jerusalem. Right before the passage that was read, Jesus has come in that triumphal entry, the part that we did with the call to worship, the hosannas. Jesus, the king, is coming to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is the capital. It's the home, and, and he is coming especially to the temple which is the, the high point, the apex of the Jewish faith. It is the place, if there is any place, that should be ready to welcome their king, Jesus. And the question is, when Jesus comes, when he in some ways knocks on the door, when he says, I am here, are they ready? And, and I, 
as we look at this passage, I think we see in our verses this morning a, a warning and also an encouragement. And I'd like us to consider both. But, but let's first just kind of consider, because let's be honest, if you've been paying attention, this passage has a lot of things that are kind of like head scratchers where we're not quite sure what's going on. So let's kind of like work through these and try to understand what Jesus is doing here. We're, we're told he, he enters the temple and then he leaves. Like that's the first verse. There's kind of like this anticlimax. He's come, the palms, everything that he steps in the temple, he looks around and it says it's late and he goes home. Then the next day, after that interaction with the fig tree that we'll talk about in a little while, he comes and now it's clear he knows exactly what he's doing. Now you should understand what he has walked into. So he's in the temple courts. These are the outer courts. That was the area that Jews and Gentiles could both have. It's the only areas that Jews and Gentiles could also worship. And you should realize these courts are huge. Um, the, The Gentile courts was about 300 yards by 500 yards. So that's like two city blocks wide and three city blocks long. I mean, this is enormous. And if you're trying to kind of imagine what that huge area would be like, somewhere along the line, something's happened with the temple. See, um, in, in the Old Testament, it's said that whenever you come to make offerings at the temple, you can buy an animal right before you get there so you don't have to bring it with you from wherever you go and, and make your sacrifices. And there's all sorts of sacrifices. Sacrifices for when your firstborn is born. Sacrifices of praise. Sacrifices for other reasons. And so, some point along the time, it was decided that the best way to do this is to bring all of the animals that are for sale into the courts. It just that way, you know, this whole area, you know, it could be like a one-stop shop. You walk into the temple, you buy the animal, you sacrifice it. It's convenient and it's also profitable. And so these outer courts, this huge area, doesn't, doesn't feel like this great worship area. It feels a little bit more like a market. There's animals everywhere. There's tables everywhere. There's money changers everywhere. It's like you're through this great Middle Eastern bazaar, and it's, it's very active. And so Jesus walks into this area, and we should recognize, sometimes I think when I first heard this story, I thought like it's a small area, and he just turns everything over. That's, that's not likely. Almost everyone who's a scholar says that this is something that's more of a symbolic action. He's not turning over every single table because that would be almost impossible, but he is doing something very public. He's coming to an area, and, and just imagine if right now I just took this table and went, boom, and like, you know, the, the Lord's Supper went everywhere. I mean, that would be memorable. Um, we would, I mean, we'd also wonder what has happened to me. And that's probably how people are experiencing in this moment. Jesus just goes up to these, temp- to these tables where there's all this money and he just turns it over. He has a whip and he starts driving animals out. He's, he stops people from bringing stuff through and people are wondering what is going on. Now, sometimes this is the time that people say, this is where Jesus really loses his temper. But remember, this was a plan. You know, he already came the day before, he looked, now he's coming with intentionality, and what it's clear is what he's doing is he's protesting. Symbolically with his actions, he's saying, this is not right. And to understand what he is saying, to understand his concern, always whenever we see Jesus' actions, the best way to understand Jesus' actions is to look at Jesus' words. And, and Jesus' words are fundamental here. He, he quotes two prophecies. So you see that in verse 17. He was teaching them and saying in them, is it not written, and here's the first prophecy, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. This is a quote from Isaiah 56. In Isaiah 56, God tells the people, 
Keep doing justice. Keep doing right, for my salvation is coming. And one day I will bring all peoples and all peoples will be able to worship in my house. It will be a house of prayer for all the nations. It's a calling to be open, to be expectant. It's, it's an invitation in this prophecy. This is, this is how the temple should be, is what it's saying. It should be a place where there's this waiting and this longing and this prayerful expectancy. Keep doing what is right, knowing that one day I will do what I have promised. That's what Isaiah 56 is saying. It's, uh, have you seen the movie uh, Field of Dreams? If you're my age, maybe you have. If you're younger, you probably don't know what I'm talking about. But there's this, the main character, a guy by the name of Ray Kinsella, hears these words, if you build it, they will come. And, and everyone else thinks he's crazy for listening to these words, but he is convinced that what is being said will somehow be true, and so he starts acting. What does he do? He, he takes all of his, like a certain area of his cornfields, because he's a farmer in Iowa, and he knocks them down, and he makes this beautiful baseball field, and he constructs bleachers. He is living with confidence that what has been told him will take place. He's living expectantly. And there's a sense that Isaiah 56 is, is calling for the same thing. I have said that I will do these glorious things. I have said that I will make this house into a house of prayer for all the nations. So keep being faithful. Keep trusting. Keep praying for this is what will happen. It's, it's, it's a prophecy that's saying that the, the place of the people of God is to be expectant and open and living with the confidence that God will do what he says, that God will act. Jesus is saying that's what we're supposed to be here in the temple. But that's not what this temple right now is. That's not what the temple leadership is. He says, but you have made it a den of robbers. This, again, also is from another prophet. It's from uh, the prophet Jeremiah. There's a time in Jeremiah's day where uh, God speaks specifically to the religious leaders at the temple. And he criticizes them, there's, there's a corruption. Whenever there are sacrifices made, the, the religious leaders kind of take a cut of it that they shouldn't. There's, there's a lot of um, uh, idolatry. And the religious leaders, they're, they're not living morally, but here's the way they respond to it. You would think that if you're in like God central, if you're right at the temple, this is the one place that you should be especially aware that I must live with integrity and holiness. But that's not how the religious leaders in Jeremiah's day felt. Instead, they were saying, hey, we're in the temple. Nothing will ever happen to us because God loves his temple and we're doing important stuff. And so God is never going to act. God is never going to come. We can get away with whatever we want. God says, you're seeing the temple like a den of thieves. You know, a den is a hideout. It's a place that you're safe. You're, God is saying, you see right now this temple is the place that you are safe and you can do whatever you want. Have you ever worked with someone who has like a, you know, a bad work ethic? I remember when I was a waiter in a, a diner in Massachusetts, sometimes some of the waiters, you could tell the difference, sometimes people were just had really good work ethics, but others, when the manager was gone, they would just get really sloppy really quickly. And the thinking was, hey, you know what? No one's seeing what I'm doing. I'm not gonna have any consequences. Why work harder than I need to? And there's that element that this, this idea of the den of thieves is speaking of. These, these leaders feeling like, hey, God's not going to do anything. 
God's not going to act, so I can get away with whatever I want to. So, so Jesus is spe- saying you should be open and expectant, waiting for God to act and living with confidence that God will do something. But instead, you think that God is never going to do anything. You think that you can just do whatever you want and it won't make a difference. You're, you're living without any expectancy of God doing a thing for you. And, and the reason he says this is because of what he's seeing. Now, why, why does what he is seeing bother him so much? Well, it's a subtle thing. But, but think of it this way. If, if, if the religious leaders took Isaiah 56 to heart and said there is going to be a day when God is going to come and the nations will stream to him and all will worship him and our lives are built on that idea, how would they have treated the outer court, the one place where the Gentiles could worship? Wouldn't they protect it? Wouldn't they be concerned saying, Gentiles, please, we, we want to give you a place because you one day will be worshiping alongside of us. But instead, they, they, they treat it just pragmatically, like who really cares? We've got a lot of space. We might as well allow there to be these offerings and this money changing because, you know, it, it just is easier. And it's just more profitable. See, somewhere along the lines, the religious leaders stopped looking expectantly, believing that God was going to do something remarkable. And instead, their practices just started being everything for them. Somehow it became that their busyness, that that getting things done, that being able to make a living, that being respectable in the eyes of others became everything for them. And God, in some ways, became an accessory, an add-on where he's there somewhere in the background, but he doesn't really make that much of a difference when it comes to their lives. It doesn't have to have been this way. Think, we, we saw this at the end of December with Simeon and Anna. Do you remember them? Do you remember these were these two people, and and what were their postures the whole time they were in the temple praying, day and night, longing, and what were they doing? They were waiting expectantly, waiting for God to fulfill his promises. But that's not what we see here. What we see here is, is a closedness. And, and what Jesus says about them here should give them great pause and great concern because in that Jeremiah prophecy where God says, you have made my house into a den of robbers, he goes on and says, and I will visit and I will come and I will destroy you and I will destroy this house. When Jesus is saying, you have made this into a den of thieves, the implication is, and therefore this place will be destroyed. And that's actually what what this enigmatic passage about the fig tree is saying. So this is one of those places where people get confused. You can look at actually people throughout the generations who feel like Jesus has just kind of lost his top and, you know, like blown his top, lost his head. What's, what's going on? Why is he getting so grumpy towards a tree? 
But for us to understand when Jesus curses this fig tree and it ends up withering, what's going on, we need to recognize how these two stories are intertwined. You notice it starts with Jesus at the temple, then we get to a part about the fig tree, then it goes back to Jesus at the temple, and then it goes back to Jesus with a fig tree. And the point is that they're supposed to be mutually interpreting each other, that the fig tree is, is bigger than itself. It's pointing to something beyond itself, that is the temple. So about 25 years ago, um, in, a, in a performance in Saturday Night Live, Sinead O'Connor, who was a singer of the time, perhaps you're familiar with her, at the very, uh, partway through her performance, she took a picture of the Pope and she tore it up into little pieces. Now, the news the next day, no one ever asked, what did that picture do to her? Like, no one thought that she was being unfair to that picture. They realized that that was a symbolic action, that what she was doing was she was making a protest against the, the church itself. And in the same way, we shouldn't be asking when Jesus does what he does, what did the tree do to him? Because it's not about the tree, it's about the temple. When Jesus is coming to this tree, this is a tree that looks externally beautiful and filled with life. But when the king comes, there is no fruit for him because it is not ready. And in the same way, when the king comes to the temple, a temple that looks beautiful from the outside, and when he comes, it is not ready for him. There, there is no fruit. I mean, compare and contrast one more time. When Simeon and Anna were in the temple, even when baby Jesus came, what did they do? They saw him and they worshiped him because they were ready, they were open, they were longing and praying. But, but these religious leaders, when they see Jesus, what do they do? They plot a way to stop him. Because they've long since stopped looking for God to do anything. They are not ready. Peter notices, and it says that the tree is, is shriveled from the roots. This temple, these leaders had no root because they had no faith. So, so here, here's the warning that our passage has. It is entirely possible to be believing all the right things, to be going through all the right kind of rituals, whether it's going to church regularly or Bible study or that kind of thing, but to be completely vacant of a faith. I asked at the very beginning, if Jesus came and he knocked on the door, how would you respond? And I do think that, that, that exposes us to some degree. It raises the question, Am I living expectantly? Am I living with an openness where I see God at work and I'm waiting for him and expecting him to work? Do you, do I have a posture that, that is like Simeon and Anna? I'm not, I'm not suggesting that you and I should be at church or at home praying all day, doing nothing else like they were. Few people are called to something sp so specific. But, but when you are thinking through your plans, how much are they shaped by a confidence that God is at work? How much does your daily planning, does your thinking through the week, does your thinking through the year find itself founded upon and directed upon the belief that God is central? 
Or how much of your life is, if you're honest, just so consumed with the now, with getting this thing done and this thing done and this thing done and this thing done, that if you're honest, God is kind of in the periphery where you just kind of look to him to help you with getting this stuff done. And honestly, if Jesus were to show up, you're not sure you would have time for him. Here's the warning. The warning of this passage, the warning of the shriveled fig tree, of, of the temple with no fruit is this happened to the religious leaders of God's people, and it could happen to you and to me as well. But there, there isn't only a warning. There is also an encouragement. Jesus, at the very end, essentially is saying, you don't have to go this direction. Here is the way that I am calling you to. And it brings us to kind of the, the last, somewhat confusing part of this passage. Where after Peter speaks about the fig tree that you've cursed and withered, Jesus answered them in verse 22, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, Whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. This passage confuses us oftentimes because there's something about it that just sounds like Jesus is saying, name it and claim it. If you want that Ferrari, Ask for it and believe that you have it, and next day it will be in your driveway. If you want your friend who has cancer to be healed, believe that it will happen, and it will. We, we perhaps even know people who, who believe that and whose faiths have been shipwrecked when it didn't seem, because maybe they just assume, I just don't believe enough. And intuitively we feel like that can't be what this is saying, and, and we're right. We know we're right because even Jesus says anyone who's coming after me is going to have to take up his cross. Anyone who comes after me might have no home, might lose family. He's not saying that if you just name and claim it, you could have everything you want right here. So then what is Jesus saying? Well, the key is to understand the context and to understand how it even begins. Have faith in God. This is not bringing up a new topic here. This is saying don't be like the religious leaders who have stopped looking to God, stopped expecting that God will do anything. Be the Isaiah 56 people, the people who still believe that God is real and God is active. Be be open and expectant to what God will do in your life. That's, that's what's being talked about here. When, when he speaks about this mountain, it's not just he's saying, here's a magic trick that you can do, find a mountain, throw it into the ocean. He's talking about this specific mountain, the mountain of Mount Zion where the temple is. And he is speaking of its judgment, that this, this mountain will be judged. And similarly, I believe from the, the context and from other places where Jesus says something very similar, like in the Gospel of John, when he's saying, when you ask, he's not just talking about any little thing you want. He's talking about claiming those things that God has promised. Throughout the Old Testament, God has promised so many glorious things. He has promised a life that will last forever. He has promised uh, prosperity. He has promised unity. He has promised an end to suffering. And Jesus is saying, ask for these things. 
Ask for what God has said. Ask for what your heart desires that you know God has given you. Ask. And ask expectantly. I'll tell you, um, one of the things that I envy, that I look up to uh, in my charismatic brothers and sisters, perhaps you know some friends who are Christians who are more charismatic. Um, I don't agree with everything about charismatic theology, but one thing that I feel like I have so much to learn from is so often when they pray, they pray expectantly. When they're praying, they're praying with their eyes open, waiting to see what God will do. I remember hearing a friend of mine tell a story. It's, I'm sure it's a myth. I'm sure it didn't take place, but I, it's a good story. He talked about how this church where they were in a farming town and there was drought, and they decided, let's have a time of praying for rain. And he said, here was the problem with the church. No one brought an umbrella. And he's saying, we should be praying expectantly. And that's what Jesus says, pray. And in fact, notice, he doesn't just say, pray and believe that someday you will have it. Pray and you have already received it. Like what does he say? He says, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. In other words, I think that Jesus is saying that when we are praying, we will discover that God has already been at work answering our prayer before we even asked it. What am I saying here? When we pray, on one hand, I think we've come to discover, if you've followed Christ for any length of time, that we need to be open-handed about the specifics. So often when we're praying and we're giving voice to our desire, we think it looks a certain way, but we don't really know what's best for us. We should be open-handed with our specifics, but confident at the heart of our prayer. So about a decade ago, when, when our family was not sure where God was calling us, we were in Dallas, we knew that we were going to be leaving in, in, in the summer, and we didn't know where God was taking us next. We found ourselves praying, and at first we thought we were praying for being church planters in New England, and we were praying for that, and like, God, come on, how come it's not happening? Why isn't it moving forward? But really, as we were praying, more and more we were realizing that what we were, we were longing to see was not just us going to one place, but for God to provide for us and to give us a place where we were serving his kingdom faithfully. And really, over time, as, as things were confusing to us more and more, we were holding on to the heart of the prayer and letting go of the specifics. And God was moving us in a certain direction, and then, and then he brought us here. And I don't have time to talk about all the details, but it was such a clear set of answers to prayer for us that brought us here. And then when I think about that, months before we even started praying, there was already a search committee here. Months before I even thought to pray some of these things, God was already paving the way to bring us to this place, and that's the way it works. When his, it says, Jesus says, your father loves to give good gifts to his children. When we pray, we, we have an idea of what the fulfillment looks like, and it might be way off because God has a better idea, but we can be confident, we can be expected because God has promised that he will provide, that he will work all things for our good, that he loves to give us good things. And we can even be confident that God has already been at work long before we even thought to pray because he already has given us all things in Christ. Before we even came to know of Jesus, God has already 
conquered death, conquered sin, brought forgiveness. He has already paved the way to make us whole. He has already paved the way to heal this world. He has already begun to answer our prayers long before we thought to ask them. And Jesus says that is how you should pray. You should pray expectantly. Pray with eyes open and heart open, believing that actually God is active in this world, that he loves you, and that he will do these things, not necessarily exactly the way that you ask or even the timing that you ask. Sometimes it will be years beyond what you want. Sometimes it won't be until Christ returns that we see those prayers fulfilled. But we can be confident that God will hear and will answer. And what Jesus is saying this is, when he's saying this at the end, this is not just to make us better prayers. It's because having this posture is at the heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. See, it is entirely possible for us, like the religious teachers, to get so caught up and so forget that we have a God who is here and is real and is at work. And Jesus says, here's what I'm calling you to. I'm calling you to an expectancy, and I'm calling you to an openness. And here's how, how you can go in that direction. Pray. Pray expectantly. Wait and long for and wait to see God fulfill his promises to you and to me. I'd like to give us an opportunity um, to spend a few minutes in prayer. Um, perhaps a lot of the time is spent just even acknowledging how, how distracted we have become, how, um, how much we have forgotten that God is at work and is real in this world. What we'll do is we will kind of pray these words. These will be words that we pray throughout the t- our time of, of Lent, throughout this season. And part of the way through, we'll pause for some silent confession. So where the print is bold, could you please join with me in confession? Our Lord and King, together, we confess that in our hearts, in our minds, and with our hands, we have disobeyed you. We have failed to give you the honor and worship that you deserve as our King and as our God. We have bowed before idols of our own making and served the creature rather than the Creator. Deliver us, Lord, and forgive us only by the blood and merits of Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you forever and ever. Amen. Hear the good news of the gospel from Psalm 32. Happy are those whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Happy are those to whom the Lord imputes no iniquity. Brothers and sisters, in Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. Thanks be to God.